This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello? Liam, it's Jonathan calling. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah. Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master. I serve as Professor of Theology and Dean of the School of Divinity at Cairn University. If you'd like to access more episodes of Theology on the Go, you can subscribe on iTunes or you can access the archive at the website of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, placefortruth.org. Now, our guest today is Dr. Liam Gallagher. Dr. Gallagher is Senior Minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He's the author of several books and has recently been writing some shorter pieces on the doctrine of God for various Alliance websites. I'm honored to call him a friend and delighted to host him today. Liam, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling me a friend, actually, because uh, after all that I've been writing, I've lost some. So it's good to know that you're still there. No, no, no. Stronger than ever. I really appreciate the things you've been doing. So let me just start with this. The the doctrine of the Trinity was was hammered out in the early centuries of the church. Um, and, and I'm wondering, you're coming at this as a pastor. Why do you think these kinds of fine distinctions that we make when we speak of the Trinity, uh, these fine distinctions are, are so important for the church? There, there is nothing more important for the people of God uh, and for the people of God corporately in the church than to know the God of whom we speak and to have a sense of the wonder uh, that we should have at the enormity, the, the greatness, the majesty, the glory, uh, the power of the God who is there. And the distinctions which the church arrived at in its What's a couple of hundred years, nearly 300 years struggle, wrestle, wrestling with the, the teaching of the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, to arrive at a place where they could say something, or at least say what God was not, because a lot of it was negative, that God is not this and he is not that, uh, to arrive at a place where they could say clearly, this is as far as we can go without stepping beyond the bounds of what has been revealed in Scripture. That, that God as he is in himself actually is beyond our comprehension and understanding. That there, there, he is incomprehensible. That's one of the first things that, that a creature has to say about the God who's there. And they said that very clearly. God is in himself incomprehensible. God is known fully only to God himself. But that there are things that have been revealed to us and we can come to at least a clear knowledge of the things which have been revealed. And so what the, what the creeds represent are the highest and best expression of what the church believes about God as he has revealed himself to us. That, that's, that's a great way to introduce it. And, and one of the things you mentioned there I just wanted to pick up on is you mentioned the incomprehensibility of 
of God in his in his essence and and one of the things that seems like it's difficult is he can't be fully grasped by any human analogies and and I'm wondering you know that we normally think of that as counter to what a pastor tries to do pastors try to explain the things of God and, and among other things and and so and so how do you wrestle with that wrestle with the fact that after a certain point you have to say you know, I can't explain this to you. I anything I would try to do to make this seem easier would actually be an, a gross injustice to the reality. Well, I think this came home to me once when when I I was writing a book. Actually, uh, it was a series of sermons that I preached in defense of penal substitutionary atonement, which was under attack in the UK, and and I had been urged. Uh, as somebody who's relatively well known there to, to to write something, and so these sermons of mine were all were all printed up and and the book was published. And a friend of mine, Sinclair Ferguson, said to me, Liam, in the first chapter there, you you say something. Are you quite happy with what you said? And <laughs> I, I looked at the thing again, and and it said, here I was trying to break. I was trying to break down for my congregation and for the readers, the Pactum Salutis, because they'd never heard of that in their lifetime in Britain. And, uh, and I'm trying to break down what it meant. And so I say, some, I say something like this, uh, that God is, God is one, but his is not a simple oneness. It's a complex one- oneness, which is <laughs> utter nonsense theologically. Utter nonsense theologically. So I'm just giving you a heads up. I am now pleading guilty to having put that in print somewhere. I was not referring there to the simplicity of God, but in essential matters. But but I was trying to explain the pactum salutis to people, and and I learned a lesson from that. I learned a lesson that there's a danger. There's a danger in trying to explain things that are beyond our pay grade, and. Uh, that the, the church has language to protect us from misunderstanding God, and and we need to teach the people. Look, I can tell, I can go this far, I can go this far, but I have to draw a line there and say, if I go any further, I'm liable to be teaching error, or you're liable to pick up error from what I'm teaching, even though I may not be wanting to do so. So that was a great lesson to me uh, in in not going too far. I think the other thing too is that this this modern preoccupation with having to explain and give analogies and give examples of of the being of God has robbed our worship of a sense of awe and wonder of the magnificence and the majesty and and that sense of the awesomeness of God. I I, I do think that the reason why our worship has been impoverished and therefore our Christian lives have been impoverished is that we've lost that sense of the highness and, uh, and glory of God. I, I remember putting, putting it once like this, that when we're thinking about God um, in Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 6, when it talks about the holiness mm-hmm. of God, what that means is that God is above us and apart from us. He is not like us. There are no points of contact between God and me. I, I'm made in his image, 
but he is nothing like me. And I, I can never, once I start to try and think about God from my perspective, and I start projecting onto God my human experience, such as is done when, when you take, you know, parent and child relations and you try to project them onto God, you're doing something that is way beyond our human right or authority to do. And, and that, that's dangerous. It's dangerous for the church. It's dangerous for people to think that we can do that because invariably what that does is it brings God down. It brings God down to our level and we flatten everything out and our whole Christian lives, our worship, everything is flattened out as a consequence of that. And I can illustrate that. Um, I, I think the new, the new approach to God that we've been talking about in the big debate uh, where uh, God the Father becomes a husband, God the Son becomes a wife, in submission to our husband and God the Holy Spirit becomes the, the offspring of, of that mutual love and so on, which is arrant nonsense and actually blasphemy in my, in my view. Um, but the, that kind of idea has it's taken hold. It's taken hold in, among certain evangelical Anglican groups in different parts of the world. And uh, it's taken hold in general evangelicalism. And the effect of it has been that those people have then taken the next step, that, that worship is not contemplating God. Worship is everyday life. It's what we do in our everyday life. It's to do with obedience and, and, and doing this and that. And the other thing in, in obedience to God and as a result of, of knowing God, but there is no contemplation of the mystery and the glory of God. And so in those circles, corporate worship has gone out the door and it's all about evangelism, it's all about building up or teaching, and it's not about the awe of worship of God. So these wrong doctrines have implications for the life of the church. Yeah, that's a that's a very sobering connection to draw between the, the the downgrade in the idea of public worship and and the general confusion about the doctrine of God. But but that connection uh, makes makes all the sense in the world. Um, so so in other words, then it, it it matters a great deal to you as a pastor that you do say, look, there are mysteries here that we can't comprehend because to explain those things or to attempt to explain those things would not only be to mislead people, but also to denigrate their worship. It, 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 yes, it, it, takes the, it takes the heart and soul out of worship. There, there is nothing to, to lift us up beyond where we are. So our gatherings are simply to get something that we can take away with us, a kind of moral impulse or, a, or even a gospel thought, which is a good thing to take away with us. But, but it's all about us. It's not, we're not left with open-mouthed wonder uh, this God who transcends every category we have, who doesn't fit into any categories we have, who is, who is above our pay grade in terms of our thought and our reason, and that, that we, we are left, as, we're left coming as far as we can get into a knowledge of him. And there we have to stop and wonder. We have to stop and wonder at the sheer glory and splendor of who he is. But but that doesn't happen. 
it doesn't happen because we've already reduced him down to our size. So he's just one of us, really. And this among people who would protest that it's not. This among people who would like to feel that they are, you know, good Bible-teaching, Bible-believing people, and they are good Bible-teaching, Bible-believing people. But their view of God has been degraded by the insinuation of these errors into the understanding of who God is. Now, you spoke earlier about a controversy that you had uh, gotten involved with uh, some years ago about penal substitution, and and now we're talking here about the Trinity and sort of a a, a modern controversy that's happening. And so, I'm wondering this: you, you're a you're a pastor, um, albeit of a very visible church, but but you're you're a pastor of a church, and and I'm wondering what you see as the pastor's role in identifying. Uh, errors and heresies in the local church or even in the broader church circles of which we're a part? Well, I think the pastor's model is, is, uh, by analogy at least, the model of the prophet and the apostle. Uh, We are not prophets or apostles, but our role is analogous to that in the sense that we have been given a word to proclaim. That word has not come to us by direct revelation, but by indirect revelation through Holy Scripture uh, that comes to us through the holy apostles and the holy prophets of, of, of uh, the, the Old and the New Testament. And so we have in our hands the lively oracles of God, the living word of God. And it's our responsibility then to proclaim that word. And Paul, when, he, when he's describing the task of uh, the pastor, the, the teacher, preacher, he describes it not only as, uh, as proclaiming what has been handed on, this great message that has come down, the tradition that's been given to us, the Word of God that has been passed on to us. But he also talks about guarding the good deposit, guarding the faith. And in his own example, for example, the Apostle Paul not only proclaims positively what the message is. But he also, as he goes along, says, if, if this is true, then this and this are not true. If, if this is gospel truth, if this is our understanding of who God is, then this person over here who's saying this is wrong. We, you need to know that that's not someone you should listen to because what they're teaching is wrong. It's not biblical. It's not of God. It's not part of the, the gospel. So I think I think a pastor has a has a great responsibility, and, and to some degree, the extent to which the pastor has influence beyond his local church places on him a greater responsibility. I mean, I remember sitting uh, at a table in, uh, in Keswick in England, and it was the Keswick Convention was on, and, and I think I was preaching, and one or two others of us were, were sitting talking about this controversy, a leading evangelical figure had said that um, the idea of penal substitutionary atonement was cosmic child abuse. And I'm sitting there saying, you know, somebody should say something about this. And I think it was Alistair Begg was one of the, and Sinclair Ferguson was the other guy. And Alistair, Alistair said, well, who, who's, who's, going to, who's going to say something about it? Like, I think we've all got to the, the stage in life where it's, it's, it's us now. It's our responsibility. And he, said, he looked at me and said, Liam, you should say something about it. So 
and I had never thought of doing anything like that. Now, that mine was only a, mine was a kind of punch uh, out against the thing. And there were other scholars who followed uh, what I'd said and, and, and published a fuller, more scholarly book, which was outstanding and really addressed all the issues in greater detail. But, but I, think, I think you have to use your gifts and you have to use the opportunities you have to defend the gospel. And in this latest controversy, this is the most, this is the most serious thing of all. If we would fight for, the, for justification by faith alone or for penal substitutionary atonement alone, uh, if we fight for those things, this is a bigger thing. We're talking here about the God we worship, the God that we adore, the God in whose presence we live, uh, whose fellowship we long for, the God who made us, the God for whom all of life, all of our, these lives of ours is, is, uh, is meant to be our great preoccupation. And, uh, it, uh, you know, I want, to, I want to think about him. I want to have his thoughts fill my thoughts. I want to have knowledge of him, greater knowledge of him. And the thought, the thought that people would take away from his glory, the, the thought that people would add in to what we know, stuff which is nonsense, really, by all accounts, just nonsense, and which would take away, which by extension then begins to diminish people because our knowledge of God is meant to enhance uh, human life, not diminish it. And, and the implications of some of this false teaching is to diminish human beings, and in this case women particularly, but, but by extension, men as well. Uh, so I think we have an obligation to, to speak up. You regularly are preaching, and you are you're preaching from the Bible, proclaiming uh, the God of the Bible, and and then the, in these other ways, engaging in these debates as as opportunity arises. I'm wondering, are there examples from the past or writings from the past that have been especially helpful for you as you've thought more about the doctrine of God, about the Trinity, about about who God is? Yes, uh, the, um, there's a scholar at uh, Quincy University called Matthew Bates who has produced a book called The Birth of the Trinity. And he, he reminded me of the fact that when I started out as a, as a Christian and when I first went to seminary I, uh, in Ireland, I was enrolled in the University of London uh, and the first things I had to read were uh, on the Incarnation by Athanasius and on the Trinity by Augustine. And uh, those books written by those great figures of the early church were quite vital in me coming to an understanding of both of those issues, the Incarnation and, and the Trinity. And in both of those books, those men, Augustine and Athanasius are expounding scripture, the expounding scripture that relates to the subjects at hand. And the way that they approach the scripture 
especially in the Old Testament, especially some of our Psalms and Isaiah passages, is that they recognized that it, there, were, there were those sections of Scripture in which we heard voices speaking that were not just the voice of the immediate prophet, like David or Isaiah, who was speaking, but, but that there were other voices in the text who were saying things um, to us. So, for example, in, in Psalm 2, we have, we have the voice... We have a voice at the beginning describing um, the, 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 the kingdoms of this world setting themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let's burst their bonds. And then commenting that he who sits in heaven laughs. And then hearing someone say, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then someone else speaks. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. Now, the New Testament, when it's unpacking that, tells us who is actually speaking at that point when the Lord said to me, this was the voice of the Son of God himself. This is the voice of Jesus. In fact, in at the baptism of Jesus, the Father's voice is heard, quoting from that second psalm. And as you go through the book of Psalms, 45, 110, and others, you hear these speeches going on back and forth. Um, a body you have prepared for me. Hebrews tells us that those were the words of Jesus as he was coming into the world. Um, Jesus himself unpacks Psalm 110 in, Ma in Mark chapter 15, I think it is. And uh, those voices, you, for example, in, in Isaiah, you hear this one speaking and he's saying, I, I am he who made everything. And as you look at the context, actually, it's the servant of the Lord. It's this other figure. Um, who is saying those words, and those are the words that, whereby he's self-designating himself as the God of Israel. And it's that, you know, it's those conversations that, that you discover in the Old Testament, which were the foundation for the early church recognizing that, in fact, the Trinity had been being revealed throughout the Old Testament. And one one good way of of teaching the Trinity is to take people back to those passages in Isaiah and in the Psalms and expounding them and showing them the people-focused the people orientation of those particular revelations of God. Um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And here's David, or David is speaking as David, I think, at that point, and referring to both the Lord Christ and to the Lord the Father. And um, you, you see that pattern uh, emerging. And it's quite vital, I think, to understand, to understanding where the early church got all those elements that went together to, uh, to form their understanding of the triune. The, 
those are those are such rich um, minds for us to explore. I, I, I'm wondering, uh, as as our last question here, if you had someone in your church who came up to you and and wanted to have a good introduction to the the Trinity or to the doctrine of God, would you point them in the direction of uh, of Augustine, of Athanasius, or is there some um, more contemporary book that you would put in their hands before that? I mean, any 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 resources that you'd recommend to our listeners? Well, you can get good copies of both of those. I, I would certainly, De Trinitate by, by Augustine, the Trinity by Augustine, is, is worth having a go at. I mean, I, I know people who go and read Augustine's Confessions, so I think if they read his Trinity, they would, they would have a good introduction to that. I think they're, on the Alliance website, there's quite a list of, of books at various levels, which um, <laughs> it just escaped my memory at the moment because my mind is full of... <laughs> No, that, mind's full of these books. No, no, that that's. I had a, I had, a, I had a list before I spoke to you. No, no, <laughs> no. That's all, that's often the way these things are. And the good news for our listeners is they can pull over to the side of the road, take out their smartphones, and go to placefortruth.org or do it when they get home. Um, Liam, my friend, thank you very much for all your labors in the Lord, and thanks for your time today. Thank you. It's been great. You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.